This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every day at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word, we gather here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, life questions, anything on your heart or mind. Uh, All you need to do is call us. Remember, the program is always more interesting when you call than when I talk. Uh, All you have to do is dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. Excuse me, that was a sneeze break. (laughs) 340-9585. Or you can call us toll-free if you're outside the local San Antonio area by dialing 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app, um, sending them in that way. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We look forward to your calls. While I'm waiting for them, let me talk about the elephant in the room. Um, we have been, little Calvary Chapel of San Antonio has been all over the news media for the last few days, uh, not only locally but nationally, um, because we had a COVID-19 outbreak here at the church, it is an amazing thing to consider the attention uh, that a disease, a virus, will attract. Um, when what we want to do is we want to go about our business talking about Jesus. Um, for any of you in the audience who haven't seen or aren't aware, we had a whole bunch of people, 50 or more, who uh, tested positive. Paula and I were among them. I mentioned that we had been uh, tested uh, positive uh, in an earlier program. Uh, we are safely through our quarantine period, as are most of the people in the church who have been affected. We have been uh, abundantly blessed and protected by the Lord. We haven't had any severe issues uh, with any of our folks. Um, but for some reason, this is a huge story. Uh, and I just think, my goodness, um, I'm here to talk about Jesus um, we would appreciate your prayers. We, you know, I'm done doing interviews, but we just rather do what we do. And part of what we do is this program. Uh, we are doing well. We didn't do anything wrong. Um, um, we're reopening. In fact, one of the local stations on the radio said that uh, 
the COVID-19 virus has closed the local church. We, we closed for two weeks. We're reopening on Sunday. So none of that is changing. Um, we're going to be a little more careful, we hope, when people come back. But we will be back live uh, for an in-person service on Sunday, and then we'll be back on our regular schedule. So uh, for those of you in the audience wondering why I didn't say anything about it yesterday, I had no idea it was going to get this big. I get interview requests from the New York Times, from uh, other places in Houston, from CBS National Television, and I'm just thinking, this is absolutely insane. So that's what's been going on here, and we would appreciate your prayers not only for our people who are still suffering with uh, this virus, um, but also that we can sort of go back into anonymity, where it's all about Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul said, I preach Christ and Him crucified. That was the message, and this is what we want to do. I know we don't live in a time capsule. We, 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 we've got to deal with the real world. But the truth of the matter is, it's just Jesus. That's the only message that we've got. So again, I thank you in advance for your prayers. Here is a first question that was sent in, and this is a little bit of a struggle for me answering this one because I'm not quite sure what Charles from our email inbox is trying to say other than he believes in soul sleep. He says, Dear Pastor Ron Arbaugh, I want to first say that I enjoy listening to your radio program and have learned some important things over the years. I also think that your church approaches teaching the truth more closely than other mainstream Christian churches. It's good people like you that help hold society together physically and spiritually, especially during this present time of lawlessness in some areas. And here's the but. Last week I heard you use 2 Corinthians 5, 8, as proof that the idea of soul sleep is inaccurate. You compress that verse into the shorter, popular, but misleading phrase, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. My specific question to you is, will you publicly admit on the radio that the word rather, an adverb in the Greek, Strong's number 3123, usually translated rather, meaning more, rather, sooner, most of all, by far, above all, Wander prefer does in fact definitely appear in the original Greek in Second Corinthians chapter five verse eight. Please say the word rather slowly on the radio. Okay, here I am, Charles. Rather, according to the ultra literal, um, a conservative version interlinear translation, Second Corinthians five eight reads as follows: And we are confident and pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be a home at home near the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about uh, what this is, a little translation. A couple of things. First, the word rather appears in the, the majority texts. In the original Greek, in the manuscripts, it appears. And that's why the New King James, the King James, uses the word rather. But the other translations are using the Alexandrian manuscripts. And it doesn't appear then. Now, having said that, that's very important because the the Alexandrian transcripts aren't better, they're not any worse, they're not any more honest or dishonest than are the majority text. The, the translators are translating the text that they have before them. Uh, the Alexandrian manuscripts are older. Um, some scholars believe that because they're older, they are more authentic. I personally don't ascribe to that. 
Um, but uh, it's in one set of tran- manuscripts. It is not. Or it is not in the other set of manuscripts. So the translation that we have, whether it uses the word rather or not, doesn't really cause any difficulties. I think it's very important that we understand this now. Regarding this idea of soul sleep, it is an aberrant doctrine. When Paul says we are confident, yes, well pleased whether it's rather or not, to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord, he's talking about the hope that we have in Christ. In Philippians, he says, I, to, I don't know what to do to depart and be with Jesus is better by far, but to remain in this body means work. And then he sort of comes up with the Holy Spirit telling him, no, you're going to remain in the body. Um, and he's content with that. But he says to be with Jesus is better by far. No wonder that people would rather be with the Lord than remain here on earth. And if you go back to verse 6 in this passage of Scripture, and I'm reading out of the New King James, so, so you're getting the, the, the transcript, the manuscript that you want. He says in verse 6, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Verse 8 simply flips that over, And he says, no, the better thing is to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That's an imperative in verse 8. So, Charles, you've got to divorce yourself from this soul sleep doctrine. It is aberrant. There's no value to it. And it misses the point completely of what Jesus wants to say. Um, The text is dealing with the question that many people have. What happens to believers when they die? Christians will leave these bodies, will be resurrected new bodies, and will be with the Lord. And so as clearly as Paul can make it, to be absent from the body in this context means that we will be present with the Lord. It's not better if we have to go to sleep. If the Lord tarries for a thousand years, to sleep for a thousand years is is of no value. And that misses the whole point. I don't know what your background is theologically or religiously. But this idea of soul sleep, and I imagine uh, you're a Seventh-day Adventist, but regardless, um, the idea there is there's nothing better than working for the Lord here except being present with the Lord. And the way we're present with the Lord is we die. We immediately go into the presence of the Lord. By the way, not only does this sort of, of deal with the doctrine of, of soul sleep, it also destroys the, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Um, the early church, they wanted to see the Lord. So as long as we're in heaven, we're going to be with him. That's what makes it heaven. So Charles, thank you for the nice things you said, but this is a question that you have no biblical grounds for other than a bias that you may have based on your background or upbringing. So I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for our live calls and questions. Here is the next question. It's anonymous. Uh, Will aborted children be in heaven? Anonymous answers yes. Uh, children who die before the age of accountability, children that die as stillborn, uh, or children who are murdered in the womb will be in heaven. 
And I, I can't imagine a more glorious reunion. Can you imagine? Well, just think about your own church or the people that you know. People who became pregnant, got abortions, then got saved, and they realized that what they did was horrible. Well, they're going to be reunited with, reunited with that child in heaven. And when they're reunited with that child, what a wonderful moment that will be. Now, I've had moms who are so guilt-ridden because of their abortion. We have to remind people always that to be in Christ means the old is gone, the new has come. When I say the old is gone, all of your sins, past, present, future, are wiped away. And you are without spot or blemish in heaven. And I've had some women, oh, I don't want to see them. What would I say? I'll feel so guilty. They'll hate me. No, not in heaven. It's a completely different order of things. And imagine what it's going to be like when you see your baby in heaven. Now, I don't think what we're going to see in heaven is a baby. I think what we're going to see is whatever the perfect incarnation in a physical glorified resurrected of that child is going to be. That's what we're going to see. But instantly, remember, First Corinthians says, now we know in part, then we'll know in full. And the idea there is that, that we're going to know exactly who that is. They will know who we are. And the most glorious reunions of all will take place in heaven. Now, Anonymous, the, the Bible doesn't really talk about abortion. It was an unthinkable thing in the ancient world. I wish it were still an unthinkable thing. But here's what we know. We know that when David's son died, um, the son that was a result of his sin with Bathsheba, David cried out to the Lord. He grieved and he mourned. Um, But when the word came to him that his son had died, David got up, he cleaned himself up and went back to work. And basically the, the servants were beside themselves. Well, why were you crying and why were you so filled with grief? But now that we told you he's dead, they thought they'd be in trouble by telling him that. Now you get up and you clean yourself up. He goes, look, my son cannot come to me, but I will go to him. And that was a child who died. And David could look forward to being with him. So anonymous aborted children are going to be in heaven. If you ask the question because you had an abortion, uh, I just want you to think about one thing, the goodness of God. How sweet that is. How sweet that is. That God would give your child back to you and give your child his mother back. Good question. Here's a question from Jacob, a statement, really. I believe Nebuchadnezzar was demon-possessed. Do you agree? Um, Yeah, I do. Nebuchadnezzar uh, was one of the most evil people that's ever walked the face of the earth. He was absolutely ruthless. There wasn't anything noteworthy or praiseworthy about him. I mean, he was rich. I'm sure he was handsome. I'm sure he could fight. I'm sure he was tough, all those things. But he was absolutely bereft of character. And I believe uh, when you get that far gone, you're demon-possessed. We also know from his own testimony in chapter 4 of Daniel's prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar, um, after taking credit for all the things that God had done, in spite of Daniel's warning against it, uh, he sort of became like a bovine, like a cow, 
out in the field, and he lived like an animal for a period of seven years. And when he came to his senses, he, he repented. And by the way, that testimony is a testimony that ensures that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in heaven. Um, but but every time you see that kind of wickedness, then you're pretty sure that demons are involved, especially in the ancient world. So yeah, I personally believe that Nebuchadnezzar was demon-possessed, but we don't have a, a, a chapter or a verse in the Bible that would tell us that. What we do know now is that he's going to be in heaven with us, and that's a wonderful thing. By the way, Jacob, and I think this is for everybody who asks, whenever you see uh, mass murderers, um, a guy who walks in and blows up a, a, a nightclub in Florida, um, somebody who shoots out of a hotel room in Las Vegas, um, kids that go in and and uh, uh, with automatic weapons shoot a school up. Um, that's always the devil. 100% of the time, that's always the devil. Now, we don't like that. The media will never say that. But it's always the devil whose job is to rob, to kill, to steal, and destroy. And he's always looking for hosts that he can use to do these terrible things. Now, the media will never blame the devil. The media blames guns. But the truth is that these people, young and old alike, have given Satan at some point in their past an opportunity. And he's patient. He's clever. He's powerful. And eventually he's going to take over. And when they're up there pulling the trigger, I promise you that's always demon possession. So that's my take, Jacob. And uh, I think you're right about Nebuchadnezzar. 340-9585. Here's a question from John. What does eisegesis mean? Uh, Eisegesis is a method of interpreting the Bible. And it's taking what the Bible says and taking out of what it says to find out what it means. So eisegesis is taking what's there and understanding it, reading it, rightly dividing the word. The converse of that means to impose upon the scripture. Exegesis, and I think when we do that, we're we're taking a worldview that we have or a political view that we have or whatever it is in your particular case, and we're imposing that view on the Scripture, and we're twisting the Scripture to make it mean what we want it to mean. Eisegesis is exactly the opposite. It means to read the text, pull out of that text, and determine exactly what it is that it means. Eisegesis is good. Exegesis is not. So I hope that answers your question, John. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Nacho, our email inbox. Uh, in Genesis 14, 21 to 23, if Abraham did not give up the people he rescued to the king of Sodom, where did they end up after they were rescued? Did they stay with Abram? Um, uh, in, in some case, um, uh, Abram, uh, some like Lot's people. Lot, of course, did not stay with Abram. Lot returned home. So uh, Abram wanted to ensure the safety of the people, and they were just set free. Uh, that's why the king of Sodom offered Abram um, a whole lot of money. Uh, Abram wanted the people. He said, "You could take all the money, all the goods. You can keep that for yourself." 
um, when he said, give me the people. Now, the king of Sodom in this particular passage is a type of Satan. He always wants the people. He doesn't care about what we have. He wants the people. The king of Sodom realized it from a wicked perspective. Please don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. From a wicked perspective, the people were the real wealth. And he wanted to enslave them. That's what Satan wants to do. He wanted to destroy them. He wanted the power of life and death over them. That's what made him feel powerful. That's a good picture of what the enemy is doing in our lives. I love Abraham's response. I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram was content to live with what God gave him. He didn't care about the spoils. He set the people free. He didn't care about enslaving anyone. He was God's man to come to the rescue, to rescue some of God's people, notably Lot and Lot's family. Very, very important passage of Scripture. You know, I taught this passage of Scripture last week, or a couple of weeks ago now. We've been not been doing our midweek studies. Uh, we'll start them again next week, a week from tomorrow. And, and, you know, this kind of a stand is so admirable, so brave. And I love this, but here's the reason that Abram could make that stand. You see, just prior to this conversation, he was met by a man named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, we know, was Jesus in a pre-incarnate appearance in the Old Testament. The Prince of Peace, the King of Peace, King of Righteousness, those are titles given to Jesus. Melchizedek met him with the elements that we celebrate on Communion Sundays. Not only that, when Melchizedek was there, Abram worshipped him, not with a guitar and a song, but worshipped him by giving him money, a tenth of the spoils. It's all yours. And only Jesus accepts worship. So the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance, met Abram so that he could be prepared for a test like this. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. I've got two COVID questions. I'm going to wait till the other side of the break. I think we're inside about three minutes uh, here for this part of the thing. So um, Anonymous asks, when we sin, do we lose the Holy Spirit? Anonymous, we can't lose. If you're really a believer and you sin, you don't lose the Holy Spirit. What you do is you quench the Holy Spirit. You literally render him powerless. Think about the Holy Spirit's job. He dwells in us. He convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He leads us to Jesus. And when we sin, we're rejecting all of that. So what we lose is fellowship with God. We lose fellowship with God. It's like the Holy Spirit is in us. we got all this remarkable power available to us. But instead we choose of our own free will to do it on our own. And literally then we're on our own. It doesn't mean we've lost our salvation at all. If you're really a believer, you're always a believer. But so often when we sin, the Holy Spirit 
is quenched and can't work in through our lives. Let me get on a personal soapbox here for a moment. When we are on social media and we're speaking ill of other believers, when we're gossiping about people, when we're polarizing sides as in a political context, you know, well, well we're red, you're blue, and, and, and we're, we're treating believers in the most ungodly way. We've lost all connection to the Holy Spirit. If I had the power to do one thing today, to, to protect Christians now, that's all I'm talking about, it'd be to just completely turn off social media. Christians wouldn't be allowed to do it. The reason is because we don't know that we're quenching the Holy Spirit. We get so bold behind the keyboard, we act in ungodly ways, and then we get angry and we justify it and rationalize it. Well, that's sin, and when we do that, that is not the Holy Spirit at all. That's the unholy spirit. And Christians, we need to repent of that. In this political season, it's going to get worse as we head toward November. It's not going to get better. And we Christians need to be above the fray. We need to be more concerned about the kingdom of God, realizing that that this world is not our kingdom. And we need to be faithful to Jesus' kingdom. We need to be faithful in how we represent him rather than misrepresent him. Well, our phones have been quiet. We'd love to have your calls. We've got 30 minutes left, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand Up For Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We're back. Welcome to the show. 340-9585. I have two COVID-19 questions. The first one is anonymous. It says, I am fearful of the coronavirus and have... Asked God to give me a sign that I will be okay. Is that okay to ask? Um, you know, God knows your heart. I, I don't want to be one to say it's not okay. But here's what Jesus would say to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Now, as I say that, Anonymous, I don't want to give the implication that that trusting in God means that you're going to be Um, exempt from this epidemic. Bad things happen to good people. What Jesus is saying and telling you not to be worried about or not to let your heart be troubled about is that he'll be with you through anything that happens. Let me give you a couple practical suggestions. And I'm a COVID-19 survivor. We've got a crisis going on in our church, as I explained in the opening of the program today. Um, what I tell everybody I care about is 
antidote to fear is faith. So just decide, instead of being fearful, you're going to trust the Lord. He has promised never to leave you. He will be with you. His grace, he told the Apostle Paul when Paul asked for, for his thorn in the flesh to be removed. God says, it's okay, I got you. My grace is sufficient for you. So fear, understand, is giving the devil an opening to keep you from serving God. You can't serve God faithfully if you're fearful. Now, I want to explain this very, very carefully. We are all afraid of something. Most of us are afraid of a lot of things. Rightly, we are afraid of losing our health. But the question that we need to ask is, do I trust that God is going to be with me? Jesus suffered. He asked his father to remove this cup of wrath from him, but his father said no. The truth is, I think, eventually everybody's going to get this. I think that will be a good thing for the most part because we'll develop antibodies and immunity to it and it will sort of take the punch out of this epidemic. But if Jesus said, I'm going to be with you, is that enough so that you can say, do not let your heart be troubled? Troubled? He tells us throughout the scriptures, do not be afraid. Do not worry. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Over and over and over, Old Testament all the way through the end. And he's asking you to trust him. Now let me give you a really practical suggestion. Stop listening to the news. Stay away from social media. Don't be influenced by everybody else's panic. Get in the Word. Sit with Jesus. Take walks with him. Is it wise to be afraid? Yeah, if you respond to that fear by faith. That's really, really important for you, and I know a lot of people are going to be praying for you. So here's what you should ask God. Give me a peace that passes understanding. Whether I get it or don't get it. Job said, shall I accept only good from God and not the bad? You needn't be afraid. And even though we are afraid, you needn't give in to that fear. Hope that makes sense. The second COVID question is from Grace. And she says, is this COVID crisis sent by God because he's coming soon? Um, no, this is not, a, not an epidemic sent by God. Um, that, that is to misjudge his character. Um, God certainly will use this to try to get our attention. Um, but no, it's not sent by God. Now, having said that, I believe Jesus is coming soon. And because he's coming soon... I think this crisis is a perfect opportunity for us to look up instead of out. We have to understand that in this fallen world, bad things happen. But yeah, he's coming soon. But remember, God didn't send this crisis. This was created probably in a Chinese laboratory. I don't know if that's politically correct to say that, but... but um, 
not sent by God. When God sends judgment on this world, grace, everybody's going to know it. Every eye will see. No escaping when Jesus returns. That's when judgment, you can read about it in Revelation chapter 19. William says, when did you know for certain that you were saved? Um, William, my experience is my experience. That doesn't mean it's a one-size-fits-all, um, but but I knew for certain that I was saved the moment I met Jesus. I was actually running away from my home, running away or trying to run away from the consequences of the horrible sins that I'd committed. Um I got about a block and a half away and literally fell on a public street on the sidewalk and gave my heart to Jesus Christ. And I got up from that encounter and I knew I was saved. It was uh, an experience that was overwhelming. I couldn't explain it because I I'd never opened the Bible. I mean, I didn't know anything at all about being saved. I, I, I knew that Christians were kind of pests, but I didn't know anything about being saved. But when I was on that public street, I knew I was forgiven. Again, I couldn't explain the importance of it. I couldn't explain the process of it, but I knew I was forgiven. And I also knew that if this man who saved me was had the authority to forgive me of all my horrible sins, I knew instantly that he was also now in charge of my life. And I would never work for anybody but him again. So, William, I knew in that instant. Uh, how long did it take? I don't even remember whether it was minutes or or uh, half hour. I don't know. But I know when I got up at that street, I was going to follow Jesus, whoever he turned out to be. Now, I didn't have answers to anything else. But I knew that whoever he turned out to be, then I would follow him for the rest of my life. And I've never had even a moment's doubt about my salvation in this ensuing 29 years. William, God wants you to know you're saved. First uh, John, uh, these things are written that you may know, not hope, not keep your fingers crossed, not guess, but know that you're saved. And um, he wants you to enjoy that security. The Gospel of John I have you in my hands and no one can snatch you out of my hands and the Father is greater than I. Also has you in his hands and no one can snatch you out of his hands. I call that the double pluck. The King James uses the word pluck instead of snatch. I call it the double pluck promise of God. And he wants us to be that secure. Good question. Here is a question from Henry. Boy, our phones are quiet today. Here's a question from Henry. He says... Why don't pastors talk more about the sin of gluttony? Um, Henry, the Bible doesn't really talk a lot about that. Um, I think probably the reason pastors don't talk more about it is because a lot of pastors are really guilty of gluttony and are grossly overweight. Um, I think we're sensitive to people in our church who are overweight. And we don't want to, to offend. We want to talk about it. I think, especially, Henry, the way that we teach the Bible here at Calvary Chapel, um, whenever we um, come across it in Scripture, uh, we go verse by verse through the Bible. Whenever we come across it in Scripture, we talk about it. 
because it's there. But we don't talk about it a lot because it's just not there a lot. And the list of sins and the scale of, of seriousness of those sins. Gluttony, well, clearly a sin is not the same as murder. It's not the same as sexual sins. It's not the same as sorcery. Those have far greater consequences. But yeah, we ought to talk about gluttony whenever the Bible does. Not to make a whole sermon out of it, but just as we go verse by verse through the Bible. Um, in case you're interested, Henry, uh, you can take those passages of Scripture, go to our website, and um, listen to the Bible studies I've done where, where Paul is talking about this sin. Um, I always use that as an opportunity to encourage people here at Calvary Chapel to be healthy, to focus on being physically fit. I always tell them, you can't serve Jesus if you're dead, so be fit. You don't have to, God doesn't care what you look like. That, that's the least of his concerns. But he wants us to be good stewards of our body in the sense that we can be healthy enough to serve. Bodily exercise profiteth little, but spiritual training is of great value. So we don't want to focus on the body, that's ego. But we also don't want to ignore the body because we need it. So um, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Alan. Do we need to keep repenting or should we, I'm sorry, do we need to repent just once or should we keep repenting? Um, Alan, there is a a, a, a horribly misguided um, section of, of Christians who believe that, no, I'm saved, grace is covered at all, so you never need to repent again. But you see, repenting as a believer is different than repenting as an unbeliever. As an unbeliever, we're asking Jesus to wash our sins and we're saying, okay, I'm going to turn. I was chasing sin, now I'm going to chase Jesus. And all of our sins are wiped away. But we repent when we do sinful things. Because if we don't, we've quenched the Holy Spirit. We've grieved the Holy Spirit. And we want to keep that connection. You know, I don't know if you've ever... And this never happens to me because, except for these last couple of days, I hardly ever get phone calls. But I watch people, especially when in the airport and we go to play, they, they, the first thing they do is they'll go plug their phones in. And they plug their phones in because they're running out of juice. Well, the Christian who is unwilling to repent of his sins against God is running out of juice. And eventually, it's going to be just him or just her. And they're going to find out that they have no power available. So, yeah, we need to continually repent. We need to keep short accounts with our sin. Paul says to examine your heart daily to see whether or not you're in the faith. So, Alan, we need to keep repenting. And if you're listening to people uh, online who are preaching, you know, you don't need to repent. That's a lack of faith and the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's really unhealthy doctrine. And I would um, caution you against even listening to that. We need to repent always. Do not grieve or quench the Holy Spirit of God. 340-9585. Here's a question from Alex. He or she, and I say that because we have a female Alex in our church. 
Pastor Ryan, does God still give gifts of healing to people today? Um, yeah, he does, but, but it's not the way we see it portrayed in church. Alex, when God gives gifts, and, and, and the plural use of the word in Second Corinthians or in First Corinthians is important. Gifts, plural of healing, that's the gift to heal somebody. It's not that he gives a gift to one man or one woman and they can heal people. That's not what it means at all. So the person who receives the gifts of healing is the one who gets healed. And surely God still does that. Now, not the way it's portrayed in crusades and that kind of nonsense. But yes, God does still give gifts of healing. Uh, you, If you've been listening to this program, Alex, you know that we have a, a doctor's office here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Um, and we've been able to share, as God has given, given gifts of healing to a lot of people, including many, many, many unbelievers. And when God does that, and then our doctors are able to tell them, this is why God did this. You know, we treat you, but it's God who heals. And it's God showing you how much he loves you, how much he cares for you. It's God saying, will you be mine? And, of course, every patient that comes to Malta Medical hears the gospel and they get prayed for. They don't want to do it. We just tell them, look, that's the only charge we have. So you may ignore it, but we're going to pray. Um, but lots and lots of people have been healed over the years. Thank you, Alex. Good question. Let's go to line one, Glenn from San Antonio. Glenn, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, thank you, Pastor Ron. I appreciate your mm-hmm. your uh, radio show. And uh, I just want to, I'm a believer and born-again Christian. and uh, But until the last few years, I've really never focused in made an effort to have a relationship with Jesus. And I have, and I'm married to a wonderful uh, Christian lady. And we talk about your program and the questions, and we appreciate it very much. My question, question, sir, is, and I I do believe that uh, God is a triune God and Mm -hmm. that he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And... and, uh, in one per in three persons in one God, and uh, where I where I struggle or I'm I'm trying to get better affirmation is when I pray and when I talk to the Lord, and I address God as the Father or I address Jesus as the Son, and I address the Holy Spirit in my prayer. I, I'm trying to get a better handle on the the ones how I go to prayer. With each one of those persons. Okay. I don't know if I'm making much clearer. You, yeah, you, you are making sense and, and uh, got no problem. Hey, can I ask you something? Um, ever since you per- started pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ, it makes everything better, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely, sir. But it, <laughs> but it raises, but it, and it, and it raises good questions. See, that's that's a curious phase that you go through when you when you surrender to Jesus and you spend time with him, then he's going to he's going to give you the I call it the gift of curiosity. Curiosity is godly. And and you're going to have more questions and he's going to have more answers and it's going to be great. Now, in terms of this particular question, go ahead. Um, you need to know, first of all, that. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they don't care who you pray to. There's no competition between them. There's no ignoring one and spending too much time with the other. Um, When you understand the roles of each of the three persons of the Godhead, it really makes it clear about how to proceed in this matter of prayer. So uh, the Father sent the Son, and the Father sent the Son because the Father lives in unapproachable light. Uh, That means very clearly there's no approach to God the Father. If we saw him, we would die in an instant in these earthly bodies. So the Father sent the Son to reveal the person, the character, the nature of the Father. Not only that, but he sent the Son and gave him a physical body so that we could relate to him and he could relate to us. He was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows everything that we're going through. And when you see Jesus, he said it himself, Don't you know that after I've been with you for such a long time, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now that wasn't Jesus saying, I'm the Father. He was saying, I am exactly the same. Colossians and Hebrews talks about Jesus being the the perfect express image of God the Father. And so when you talk to Jesus, you're able to have the Father's person, the Father's characteristics revealed to you. Now, the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. Now, for my thinking, that makes it really the most practical in our prayers, in our conversations with God, to talk to Jesus. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, he's going to send you to Jesus. If you're with Jesus, he's going to reveal the Father to you. And that gives you sort of a handle on how the Godhead works. You know, God is kind of intimidating. Uh, When I first got saved, I had a question earlier about being saved. When I first got saved, Glenn... Um, I, I and, and I, this is horrible. It's going to sound horrible, but when whenever I would think of God the Father, I didn't have a really great dad. I mean, I loved him and, and he loved me in his own way, but he wasn't really a nice guy. So he wasn't the the, the dad I could go and and approach um, um, when I when I was in trouble or something. Um, but but so when I think of the Father, uh, all I could think about was this. And this is the, the picture I had in my mind, just this green mist out there somewhere. And I knew that wasn't right, but I couldn't imagine him. But when I started talking to Jesus, when I started practicing the presence of Jesus in my life every day, then the Father became more and more clear to me in the person of Jesus. When I get distracted in my prayer, then I want the Holy Spirit, and I will just very clearly say, Holy Spirit, keep my mind from wandering. Keep me focused on what the Lord is saying to me. And I'm right back in the presence of Jesus, and I think that's the way they work. So, uh, again, it doesn't matter. There's no right way to do it. So if you're talking to Jesus, the Father's not a little disappointed because he's getting short sheeted here. The Holy Spirit isn't saying, well, hey, what about me? What about me? Because in the person of Jesus, we have the fullness, Colossians says, of the Godhead in bodily form. And Glenn, I love that so much. It gives me the most comfort 
And when I say all this all the time on this air and to our church here at Calvary Chapel, I say, just be with Jesus. And you know your prayers are going to be heard. If they're heard, we know they're going to be answered. If they're in the will of God, uh, we know that we have the protection of the Father, the love of the Father, the protection of the Son, the love of the Son, and the protection of the Holy Spirit and the love of God, the Holy Spirit. So remember, it's not the Father, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. It's the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I hope that makes sense to you, Glenn. Does that work? Oh, I think we Glenn was listening on the radio. Thank you, Glenn. What a great, great question. Nothing in my life for 29 years has been as valuable to me as that time I spend walking with the Lord. When I miss out on it, if I'm sick, the weather's bad, whatever it is, I'm poorer for it. And that's why my prayers always start off, Good morning, Father. Good morning, Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. And then the rest of my conversation is with and about Jesus Christ. Glenn, what a great question. I love your curiosity. God bless you for that. 340-9585. We've still got a little bit of time for questions, for phone calls. Here's an anonymous question. Is it fair for Christians to always support Israel in the Middle East conflicts? Uh, anonymous, the question, the answer to that question ought to be so obvious. It is. Now, that doesn't mean that Israel or Israelis are saved. doesn't mean they're, they're, they're God's special people and we should treat them special. What it means is that God gave the land to Israel. He didn't give it to Palestine. He didn't give it to Jordan. He didn't give it to Egypt. He didn't give it to Saudi Arabia. He gave that strip of land, and by the way, much, much more that they've never been able to, to control. He gave it to Israel. Now, who are we to suggest taking it away? Who is anybody to suggest taking it away? So, yes, we support Israel. Pray for the peace of Israel. Jesus has to have a, a land to come back in the Mount of Olives where he sets his feet on that mountain and it splits in half. So yeah, we need to support Israel. That doesn't mean that their behavior is right. They're not Christians, by and large. There are, there's always a remnant there. But they're not believers. We shouldn't expect them to do the right thing. It doesn't even mean that they're always right in the conflicts. But our support has to be unwaveringly for Israel. And if we don't understand that, then we're on the wrong side of the divide. So yes, especially in light of the, the, the media uh, and their favoritism toward anything other than Israel, Christians need to be a loud voice for the city of David until Jesus returns. We're actually going to live there for a while. So yeah, we need to support Israel in the Middle East conflicts. Good, good question. Well, there's the music. We're at the end of our program for today. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. God bless you. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 
And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I need the word to stand on.